Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I'll be conducting a conversation with an English conductor who has worked all over the world in both Concert Hall and the Opera House. He is currently Chief Conductor of the Bergen Philharmonic and starts as Principal Conductor of the London Philharmonic in 2021. I'm delighted to chat to Ed Gardner. Hi Ed, wonderful to speak to you. It's great to speak to you too, Mike. It's been a while and I'm speaking to you from Oslo where I'm sitting all this strange period out. And I'm, it's scary for our profession, isn't it, at the moment, but I'm loving the time to think and, and study new music. New music to you, pieces you didn't know? Yeah, do you know, one of the big projects I've been doing is, is looking through all the commissions the LPO have done over the 90 years of their existence, looking forward to 2022, where they'll celebrate their 90th birthday and just seeing what pieces we can, we can resurrect. Because a big thing, I don't know if you find it, but a big thing for us in, in what we do is that a lot of pieces get played once and very few then make that journey to the second, third, fourth, fifth performances. And I think, you know, part of our job is to give those pieces a helping hand. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things you've probably done. And I know I have with orchestras like the BBC Philharmonic and the BBC Symphony Orchestra is that you do get to do pieces again or resurrect them almost from the dead. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. And when you're, when you're working with radio orchestras, um, I mean, across Europe, really, you can, you can be a little bit more intrepid with what you programme and how you programme. And, uh, and that advocacy for pieces that have been unjustly lost in the mist a little bit is, uh, is, is really important to me. I'd like to go right back to the very beginning. And can you tell us what your very earliest musical experiences were? I'd learned instruments pretty young. I mean, not young by, by many of the kind of uh, the prodigies of our profession, but I, I, I was playing and singing from an early age, probably from about four, but I wasn't passionate about it until I joined a choir. And that was such a major part of my of my education and, and I, got a, I got into the choir at Gloucester Cathedral, my local cathedral. My parents put me in for that because it was a free private education. They didn't know so much about what the choir entailed, but I completely adored it. I adored singing with my friends. I adored the, the discipline of getting music ready for a service every day. And uh, it was a major part of my life for 15 years, really. At any stage during that time, were you, conducting your fellow choristers or did you uh, think about conducting at all or were you just enjoying being a chorister? Up to the age of 14, 15, I, I thought I was going to be a cathedral organist. So that was the area of music, the genre of music, which appealed to me most, I suppose, because it was the, it was the most impressive musical sound and the biggest shapes that I heard at that age. So, you know, the music of Messiaen, the music of Bach, even by nine or 10, I was really, really intrigued by. I didn't really think about conducting till I was 14, 15, I, I guess, but I can kind of backdate my thrill for orchestral music back to when I was a chorister. Because as you know, the Gloucester is part of the, Gloucester Cathedral Choir is part of the three choirs which make up the festival every, every summer in Gloucester, Worcester or Hereford. And we got a chance to do massive choral works with, at that time it was the Liverpool Philharmonic and uh, it went on to be the Philharmonia. But 
I can remember being in the, that huge choir for Marla 8 under my organist, John Sanders, and the, the impact that size and scale of musical thought had. After your early experiences at Gloucester Cathedral, what was your next step uh, in your education? So I thought I was going to stay at the cathedral school till I was 18, which is something you could do. Um, but a teacher who I was pretty close to, actually, my English teacher said to my parents at a parents' evening, he's messing around way too much. Um, he, you know, kind of smoking behind the bike sheds after Evensong. And you should get him away to a good public school where, where he can board and just get his enthusiasm for things going. And do you know what? It was an incredible thing to have noticed and foresight to have. So my parents and I started traipsing around these great public schools, a world I knew absolutely nothing about and was really far from. I mean, Gloucester Cathedral School is a small local school, really private, yes, but very local. And it was amazing going around Rugby, Winchester, Eton, where I ended up and, uh, and having a look at what they had to offer. And what was musical life at Eton like? It was really incredible. A, a top-level chapel choir, beautiful organs, great tuition. And the thing that that school offers you is if you're passionate about an area, whatever it is, it allows you the time and the space and the commitment of teachers to explore it as much as you want. And, and the music department was really, really phenomenal. For a school that isn't a specialist, let's say, in inverted commas, musical school, it's really it's it's phenomenal. So if you started conducting or thinking about conducting when you were 14 and 15, what were your earliest uh, ventures into it? I'm assuming it was with choirs or what, do we by this point conducting small ensembles? It was all with choirs and my, my even up to up till 18, even through university, my, my musical experience was much more choral based and vocal based than it was orchestral. So I would the director of music then, Ralph Forward, was was wonderful about allowing boys to conduct bits of the services with the chapel choir. That was a huge thrill, and I used to do that quite a lot. Um, I put together choirs myself, uh, you know, both within and outside the the school to um, to give concerts, and I did a lot of piano accompaniment. And that was the thing that I thought at one stage I'd move on to next. I absolutely loved accompanying song, accompanying singers and getting to know texts and, and, and how a song is put together, how a song cycle is put together and really working with a singer on, on a voice for individual pieces and, and, and cycles. And I thought about that for, for a long time. I, I mean, into university, I was thinking that that would be something that I would do. So next step, University Cambridge, I read. Yep, that's right. And what did you study at Cambridge? I studied music and I sang in King's Choir, which was, I mean, it's a great, it's great to have that two hours of discipline a day because you know, there's a lot of swanning around, listening to pieces of music and trying out, trying out lots of new things, but lots of coffee. I remember Joe Crouch, who's now a wonderful Baroque cellist, we used to just meet every morning and listen to, to various bits of music. Every day for two hours, we'd settle down, go into the chapel and focus on you know, that teamwork, the discipline and the, uh, the thrill of making, making music together. But it was there that I really started conducting orchestras and, and Cambridge is great for having a lot of high level musicians, a lot of NYO musicians, National Youth Orchestra musicians go to Cambridge after, the, after school and uh, the level is extremely high. So I conducted a lot while I was there without 
any real knowledge of how to do it, but but I got a certain amount of experience. And I mean, that's where a lot of people form their ideas of what they want to do later in life when they're at university. I suppose when you went to Cambridge, you may have started with one idea of what you wanted to be and by the end decided that actually conducting may well be for you. Yeah, it's... I mean, I can, now I'm sort of mid-career-ish. I mean, I'm, well, I'm well into it. I can kind of, I, I look back and I think I wasn't particularly normal in that. I mean, I wasn't confident about being able to do it by any means at, at that age. And you don't know, do you, as a conductor? I mean, you're, you don't make a sound. You don't practice on your own. And, and your only opportunity is to stand in front of this, this group of people. And it, it took me a long time, really a long time, to, to feel like I had something, something to offer. I mean, well into my career, actually. So I charted this path for myself and I, I, I loved it passionately, but I didn't really know if I was any good at it. But it was really important for me after Cambridge to go to the academy and, uh, and do a proper course and just be with practical musicians and people who, who spoke through their instruments and through their voices and uh, be in that environment and try and find my own way through. So that was a postgraduate course at the Royal Academy, studying with Colin Metters? Colometers, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's a very serious course. It's, it's three years, which is a long time, you know, in, to be in, a, in an institution. But I look back on my time at the Academy with, with fondness and huge gratitude because it's, a, it's an institution which I think enables and gives confidence wonderfully. And I, I keep my ties with it very, very close. And the vice principal at that time was Jonathan Freeman Atwood, who's now the principal of the Academy. And I'm a, I think he does the most incredible job. Academies and music colleges went through a, a, a new birthing process, a regeneration when people had to pay bigger fees. I mean, after I went there and... I was worried for them at that time, but what I found going back into the academy and actually all music colleges, the Guildhall, the Royal Northern, is that there's a seriousness about the students and an overt passion, which is even stronger than when, when I was there. And uh, I think w when those institutions do it right, they're some of the greatest places for, for music. Mm. No, you're right, absolutely right. Can you elaborate on your conducting classes at the academy what did colin metters concentrate on um was he very much into stick technique or was he very much into score learning or was it a whole overall package colin metters at the academy was I, I would say colin was mostly about how you were as a conductor about your your technique and how you came across and the psychology of, of that than score learning we did it through scores but he spoke most clearly when he was talking about the physicality of it. it he wasn't the only person we saw we had a lot of george hurst who was a great teacher of scores and i mean very specifically his version of those scores but nevertheless great and there are things of his that he i mean going through a piece like la mer with with george was a revelation there are things i can remember him saying when i do that piece 20 years later it was, I don't want to say it's academic, but it was certainly more technical than, than emotional as a course. And the big positive I think it's left me with is <laughs> in a way that the ability to know the problems you're causing as, <laughs> as a conductor and to be able to uh, analyze your own physicality and get better 
in the career. So I think it sets you up, so long as you do have a career, it sets you up for improving, hopefully till the day you, um, you pack your baton away. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very interesting in the fact that one of the things you learn is something that many conductors, I think, would benefit from, which is knowing that what you've done has caused something to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope, that one. You don't want to know too much. But, you know, as conductors, we don't get the practice time that instrumentalists or singers get. And a 25, a 35-year-old conductor is not a form, unless they're very, very special. They're not a formed musician. And you want to have in your, in your suitcase the psychological ability to analyze what you're doing. So you leave the academy after three years with George Hurst and Colin Metters. What was your next step? I assisted for a very long time, you know, that thing of being an apprentice to other conductors. And my big break was going to the Salzburg Festival and as a pianist, as a as repetitor. And they looked after me incredibly over three glorious summers. And I did, I, I did everything on that level that I could do. I, I was assistant chorus master to the, to the great Donald Palumbo, now the chorus master of the Met. I assisted on many operas. I, you know, I assisted on on concerts with the Savalish, with Marzell, with, with uh, John Elliott Gardner, with um, Sylvain Camberling. I just got, I got three summers of witnessing and being involved in the best quality of music making with a great variety of, of musicians and orchestras. And that, that period of, of my life was a hugely fortunate and revelatory. It's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, what a, what an opportunity. I would imagine you learned so much during that time. Yeah, it was a very pure time being, you know, spending early June to the end of, end of August, spending three months in that gorgeous small city. And just, I, I said to other people recently that the, the remarkable thing is you could hear, you could hear four of the world's greatest orchestras rehearsing or performing in one day, every day. And that's just extraordinary. I mean, you, you know, that's, it's gold dust, really, in our profession. So going on from there, your next assistant job um, was back in the UK with the Halley Orchestra. How did that come about? Did you have to audition uh, and apply? Or were you offered it by the Halley or by Mark Elder personally? Yeah, it's a strange one. I'd already been doing quite a lot of assisting in the UK. And John Elliott Gardner had been really kind to me. I'd, I'd done a lot of things with his... Um, ORR orchestra, his big Schumann project and Berlioz projects, and learned a huge amount from from John Elliott. Um, the Halle job came about rather like being what they say about being an, an English opening batsman. The best English opening batsman is the one who isn't currently doing it. <laughs> and they, they they had auditioned, and I was in Salzburg, so it had passed me by, and they hadn't found anyone. So. Mark had heard of me, I think because I'd been watching rehearsals and doing a little bit of assisting already at Covent Garden. He'd heard of me through David Cyrus and people there. And yeah, he gave me a call and I went up and I did an audition. And I was petrified in front of that orchestra. It's, I don't know if you've had this experience, but there's a, an infinite chasm between conducting a scratch orchestra or a student orchestra and a fully formed professional orchestra who have their own sense of rhythm their own sense of attack 
their own sense of where they play on your beat. And it was a, yeah, that took, it took me, it probably, I'm still learning it, but it, 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 it's a new, it really is a different profession when you start to work with orchestras on that level. Well, in that regard, I was lucky in the fact that I knew how the orchestra was going to respond the first time I conducted a, a professional orchestra. The problem was... That's the CBSO. Yeah, I was looking out at 85 people who knew me backwards as a violinist and as a person. Which which has its negatives as well as its positives, of course, we know. Absolutely, yeah. So, <laughs> Poacher turned gamekeeper. But, it, but yeah, the, I mean, the Halle time, I had three wonderful years there, and they, they were an, and are an orchestra who understand what a great orchestra is, and they looked after me, and they really... They gave me a lot of advice on what I was doing, sometimes too much, but they, they really, they helped me grow and they enabled me to grow in front of them. And that's, you know, for any, that's any young conductor's wish, isn't it? Because you, you're conducting everything for the first time. You're in front of a professional orchestra for the first time. People often, you know, many musicians will have played the pieces for 40 years and it's, um, you're learning, you're really learning every minute you're in front of them. And also you're learning from the music director. So you were with Mark Elder for three years, not just the orchestra. So what, what would you say that Mark gave you? Was he good in giving advice? Was he open, honest? Yeah, he, he was too. I mean, Mark's an amazing man and he, he's, he's many things. He was incredibly open to what I heard in the hall for his concerts and for his you know, in his, in his rehearsals and concerts to make, you know, his performances speak as, as well as possible in, in the Bridgewater Hall. But he thinks and talks about music as well as anyone I know. And he really can put into words what he does and how he thinks about pieces. And he, was, he would give me infinite amounts of time on, both on what he was doing and, and what, I, what I had to prepare myself. So during your time as assistant at the Halle, you would have been starting to guest conduct, I guess, with other orchestras and dipping your toe into opera um, and conducting opera performances. Where were you? Where were your first outside engagements, so to speak? Yeah, in a way, my my journey was the other way around. I was already doing quite a lot of opera, and I was dipping my toe into the the guest conducting orchestral world. So I was conducting for English touring opera. Uh, performances for them assisting and, and doing some performances and I was also uh, Glyndebourne had already been keeping an eye on me I mean right the way from academy years but my career is studded with times when I've been incredibly lucky to have you know advocacy of institutions and people but they they really looked after me and, and already by um, 2002 so the second year I was up at the Halle I was conducting performances for, for the Glyndebourne Bond tour, uh, which I then went on to become music director of a couple of years later. And so not long after finishing with the Halle, you become music director of English National Opera. How did that happen? So by that, that was 2006. So by, by then I'd already been conducting for the Glyndebourne Bond tour and, and, and in the festival as well for, for a couple of years. And Vernon Ellis, the then chair of English National Opera, had seen some of my my performances, and I don't know their process for appointing. It, do you know what is still a mystery to me? And probably better that way. But but they, uh, I got the call, and um, I'd already conducted Cosi at ENO in two thousand and five, and had a lovely time with that company. And 
it was the that was the opera company of my childhood and, and you know, the place where I saw all my first operas incidentally often conducted by Mark at that point and I it was an absolute no-brainer for me I I wanted that job and I and I knew I'd throw myself into it you know that's a looking back on it it's a job for a young man who's got a lot of energy but a, a wiser old man who knows how to deal with all the management stuff because it's uh, an opera company is a, is a is a gnarly knotted business you're you're dealing with being a musician being a being a conductor and uh helping it survive at the same time and that's not at all easy but i i loved my almost decade at at the and i still think of many people in that building the, some of the management the stage stage management the repetitors orchestra choristers my friends my closest friends in the business and uh it was a very happy time for me um, going much later in your career, you've also become music director of symphony orchestras in Bergen now and soon to be the London Philharmonic. Uh, what would you say is the biggest difference between being the music director of English National Opera and being the music director of a symphony orchestra? There's, a, there's so much more jeopardy and, and unknown with an opera company. You, you, you commit to a hugely expensive production, which is prepared for a year and then you rehearse for a month and a half and then you perform for a month and a lot of elements in opera need to go right for it to be a great show and when it does there's nothing greater i mean in any art form for me um and when it doesn't it, it's not the greatest thing in the world and you're dealing with that tightrope all the time as well as a huge cast of people within the company you're looking after and uh, it, it feels like a very very big family and the rewards are huge but the challenges of getting to the point of great performances is 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 huge and often you really don't know you could be in in a rehearsal room for weeks on end without knowing whether the the performances are going to be great and I love that risk in it and I love I love the fragility of it the success of it as well and I hope one day to be back in that that arena and then a symphony orchestra it's really week by week you, you you plan a vision or a or a thread through a whole season and you're looking seasons ahead with commissions and, and pieces but it really is week by week and everything happens much quicker and if a week goes by and it's not the best thing for whatever reason performers um conductor me uh repertoire you very quickly go on to the next the next project so that they're very different beasts I, I would never want to give up one for the other and I think I've got quite a nice balance at the moment I always thought I'd do a lot more opera than I do symphonic repertoire but it's uh, at the moment it hasn't quite worked out like that Bergen is a very interesting example of an orchestra because it's a very small city with a surprisingly world-class band in it and rather like you with the CBSO I love the fact that they're the civic orchestra and what you're doing is for the whole community, not just in the concert hall, with the education work we do for, for, the, for the local kids, with the outreach, with our, with our tours and recordings, but you're really centered, you're, you're grounded and anchored in the community you're in. What I think about a lot at the moment is how to make the same sort of relationship with an orchestra in as big a city as London, where you can never be civic in the same sort of way and a lot of my thoughts at the moment in this time when i'm not conducting and not in front of orchestras is how to make 
the LPO, one of the world's great orchestras, distinctive within a very busy musical environment. An exciting announcement not so long ago that you were going to become the music director of the London Philharmonic, as you've just said. Um, how exciting is that for you? It's hugely exciting and daunting at the same time. I think um, they're a phenomenal orchestra and to stand in front of them is a, is a privilege and to make music together is exhilarating. They, they demand of me to give my best and, and I hope I demand of them the same. And it, I, I anticipate the, the future with, with a huge sense of excitement. I think the daunting part of it comes with how to make an orchestra distinctive within that very busy environment of London and a city which is not centred around one orchestra. It's not civic in, this, in the way that a Birmingham, a, a, a Halle in Manchester or a, or a Bergen orchestra are. And that sense of community around the orchestra. I, I, that's what excites me more and more the more I do, not the touring and recording. It's, it's, it's finding what engages with the people who live around you. The LPO have, have a wonderful framework for this already, but we're talking about ways to get our tentacles into the area around the South Bank and, and for, for people in, in that region of London to feel like it really is their orchestra. And the more I think about this, this area, it, the more I take myself back to my first love of music, which is singing. I was lucky enough to conduct the Proms Youth Choir in Adam's Harmonium a few years back. And that was a choir formed of people from all around the country, a huge variety of, of backgrounds and economic situations. Lots of people who hadn't sung before, but they were delivering this modern classic, modern virtuosic classic with utter expertise and confidence and those people didn't have to pay for instruments you know they didn't have to go through that painful first year or so of, of playing and I think the ability to connect through choirs and actually choirs with orchestras is it's a fast lane to getting people interested in what we do and then of course music instrument instrumental playing can come from that and more musicians for our orchestras and our appreciators in the future. But I think choir singing and community singing is, is one of the, the great crusades I'll have in the future. Uh, I wanted to ask you about two jobs. I'm not sure whether you were doing them simultaneously uh, at any stage, but you were principal guest conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and also principal guest of the Bergen Orchestra. What would you say the differences are between, for instance, working in Birmingham as a principal guest and working in Bergen as a principal guest? The, they were very different jobs for me because already I'd, I was leading up towards music or chief conductor in Bergen. So it was, it was a journey towards that in, in Bergen. And, you know, we were finding each other, getting to know each other, doing a lot of recordings and a lot of repertoire. But that was a sort of it was, you know, it was, a, it was a, an engagement before a marriage in Bergen, in a way. Uh, Birmingham was, was, I had wonderful years with the CBSO, and, and it was a great time for the orchestra with Andrus conducting as, uh, as their music director. And my repertoire, I was able to do repertoire that came in at the sides and around Andrus's 
repertoire and uh, we did so many interesting projects then and, and a, a wide range of music and I felt I felt really part of that family with the CBSO. I still do actually when I when I go back. In my role as either assistant and then it changed to being associate conductor but I've always got to know the music directors and the principal guest conductors as part of the family you know I'm not kept to, um, to one side uh, it's encouraged that we all get to know each other. Absolutely right. I mean, there's a lovely, I mean, you find this in Scandinavia as well. There's a lovely democracy. You don't feel, anyone feels that they could say anything to anyone else. And and it, there's a, a feeling of mucking in and just being being together. I mean, I suppose with the CBSO, that goes back to Simon, who, you know, was one is one of the first great collaborative conductors in that way. And that personality of the orchestra has stayed to this day. I remember playing for you first in 2005 when you came and conducted a Mozart programme and I played for you many, many times in the CBSO, but also I prepared a programme for you for the CBSO Youth Orchestra when you came and conducted Brookner 4. Are youth orchestras something that you enjoy conducting and if so, why? And whilst I'm here asking this question, why do you conduct youth orchestras when some of our colleagues won't conduct youth orchestras? I think I'd be very happy if a huge amount of my work was with the youth orchestras because you're not, there's no issue with, with level or, or aspiration with the musicians. They're there because it's the one thing that they feel passionately about at that time in their lives. And they have the time and the, and the capacity to think about the great repertoire you're doing and deliver it to the highest level and I think as a conductor you're with a youth orchestra you often have more time and you have to delve very very deep in yourself to give them what you need I mean you it is educative I use that word reservedly but it there, there's an educative quality and if you take that responsibility seriously you're you're having to give everything of yourself to get towards the final result i mean and indeed the process is even as important as that so i i love it i really love it and it can be a variety of levels and an age group actually i i had a few years with the barbican youth orchestra which is a, a wonderful orchestra set up by colin davis to to reach into the east of london and find people of a not grade eight distinction standard, you know, this, this thing that we're, we're, we're always told the youth orchestra should be. So, I mean, I think we talked about grade five and grade six and, and that was wonderful to, to find an orchestra with many musicians who'd never played in one at all. And I, I love it. I, I'm always very happy when I have those weeks. It, it, it's wonderful, as you just said, when you see the faces of the musicians in the youth orchestra, especially when they've not played in one before, or they've not played in one as good as the one that you're conducting, when things improve so quickly, yeah. the faces on the musicians uh, just change to such joyful faces often, when they can hear an instant um, upward curve of improvement. Well, I remember from my time as a young musician, it changes you so deeply inside your love of music, but also your love of orchestras. That's so right. And the, the, the power of being in an orchestra, being in that organism and that within that ocean liner, all, all finding the same route through rehearsals and performances, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And you talk to people who are in 
the CBSO Youth Orchestra, the National Youth Orchestra, and they never lose that first feeling. They really, it's something you hang on to. It informs you. It's its seminal to what you go on to to be as a professional musician. And uh, it's uh, when you're in the profession and you have mortgaging kids and you're traveling a lot and you have, a, you know, a lot of your teaching, you have a lot on your mind. It's, 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 it's hard to recapture that essence, that first love of what it is to do it. I think what rekindled my love of music is um, is going into conducting. Um, you know, I, th I think you can spend such a long time in the profession as a player and forget the reason why you started in the first place, uh, which is a love of music and a love of everything to do with music. And sometimes it just becomes another day at work when it really isn't that. It's not work. It's 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 music and it's the love of it. But I that I think that viewpoint is very valid, and I think about that a lot now that I know many more people who play in orchestras, great musicians who play in orchestras, I think about what our job is as a conductor when we, when we stand in front of them. You have to aim to inspire a group of musicians above the daily routine and to show them that you care from the bottom of your soul about the piece of music you're performing with them and, and, and try and, try and inspire people you know the back of the the back of whatever section that who haven't felt like they've had an individual voice for 25 years to to go on that route and that psychology fascinates me and thrills me actually and and the more i do the more seriously i take that aspect um we talked earlier about your experiences at the royal academy being taught by george hurst and colin metters have you done any teaching yourself? If so, have you enjoyed it? And if not, is it something that you plan to do in the future? I do, yeah, it's a funny one to, for me, this. I, I, don't feel, I don't feel I want to tell people what to do technically. I, and that comes partly from something I was a little allergic to in my own education, but I, I don't want to go down that route what I love doing is going through scores with with people and I do that quite a lot I do that increasingly actually and over these weeks I'm setting up zoom chat rooms with uh, with groups of various academies to go through go through scores I, I really love love that and I love people it's again it's like youth orchestra I love taking in what these young conductors have been thinking about with these pieces over the weeks they've been learning them and and helping people with you know, my experience of having done them often for 25 years. Using a sporting analogy, sometimes people can have their technique overcoached and it can ruin the performances. And whereas a natural technique that maybe you do or don't understand um, serves you better. Um, you look at somebody like Jimmy Anderson, the great test match swing bowler for England. Yeah. He was coached too much and he just stopped bowling well. Um, when he went back to what he did originally, he suddenly became and started to take wickets again. And I think with conducting, it's the same. Sometimes you, you do your things because it's just natural. Yeah. Um, it's not a something that's been taught or you've had to practice in front of a mirror or... No, I, there's, a big, there's a big fashion at the moment for, for conducting students to video everything and, and, you know, even on their own and, and look back and watch it. And I, I, I'm not, it's, I mean, that's not for me at all. And it's not for the way I would ever teach. I think you can tell when a conductor's gestures are truthful to their own body and personality, I think. And that's what interests me more, getting someone's individual 
language, physical language out rather than trying to make it look pretty. When you learn a new score or even an old score, are you somebody who, like me, writes an awful lot of things in their scores? Or are you somebody who maybe learns it at the piano um, and puts a lot of it in your head and doesn't write an awful lot of instructions to yourself in the scores? So my scores are completely uninteresting to look at, actually. I, I put very little in them. I do a lot in my head and a little bit at the piano. The main thing I do is phrase lengths. So what you see in my scores is a lot of three plus five or three plus four or, you know, any, any numbers added up right the way through movements. And somehow my, that's just the way my brain works. Once I have those numbers sorted out, everything within them eventually seeps into my brain. If I don't have them, it all feels a little bit jellyfish and nebulous. But that once I have that structure, that phrase structure, somehow it, it goes in. I don't know if that makes means I'm more mathematical, but it it, it gives me a it gives me scaffolding for my brain to be able to process the the whole piece. I think that's very important phrase lengths. Um, I mean, I write mine in as well, but I generally I, I do it with geometric shapes rather than numbers. So again, maybe that's just the way my brain works. No, I put very, there's there's very little of interest in in what I write in a score, and often I go back on 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 my scores and I have no idea what it what it was about anyway. I can't read my own writing. But I mean, also on on that, some people you know treat scores as maps and bibles, and they're they're incredibly rigorously marked up i actually quite like when i do a piece for a new time to get a get a fresh score from the orchestra and and work at it from a to totally blank canvas again i think it makes me it makes me a little bit more intrepid about what i want to do with it and a little bit less lazy about just going back to a performance i've given in the past yeah that's a good way of doing it i mean i i generally uh, much more of the sort of haynes manual uh, or bible but then you do have to be, as you say, not be lazy when you go back to a piece and think, yeah, I've written it all down. I'll just reproduce what I did before. You have to start again and you do yeah. maybe add new markings. Um, yeah, right. But then, of course, the danger with that is that eventually, uh, so anecdotally, I've been told your scores could end up like um, Sir George Schulte's where you can barely read the notes printed anymore and all you all you're reading is the is the markings but then you know that if that works for you that works for you and if if yeah we're all we're all completely individual about it yeah i, I went through a lot of um Schulte scores in the, in his library of, a few years ago and that some of them are like jackson pollock paintings though so i mean lines lines and dots everywhere but it worked for him So, Ed, in our podcast, uh, every single conductor is going to be asked the same 10 questions at the end of the podcast. So here goes with question one. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? So I'm, I'm in Oslo right now, as I said at the beginning, and I'm looking out at the sea. The sound of the sea, the sound of water is one of, the, I think, the most soothing and mind-opening sounds you can have in your life and and anyone who lives near water is a very fortunate person that's a massive love uh my my the sound i hate okay this is going to be this is going to offend some people the sound i hate is wood pigeons because 
they they sing with this with with a broken melody that's both kind of melodic and kind of rhythmic and whenever they're doing it and you get obviously you get a lot in the uk not so many here thank god but whenever you have them you cannot learn music it's the most annoying sound to have against you i prefer to have car horns people screaming abuse in the street than wood pigeons if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing that really depends it depends on how busy i'd be i'd been in the in the previous weeks i mean i love i've got to tell you i love sitting in the sun if i'm if i'm tired and i've 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 uh, i've had a busy few months being with my girlfriend sitting in the sun probably a little bit of uh, a little bit of white wine at lunch uh, that would be my perfect day it's something we promised ourselves we would also do and please feel free to bring your girlfriend along but we did also promise ourselves that we would spend a day at lords watching a test match sadly this summer it doesn't look like that will happen that really is one of my great pleasures and uh yeah i haven't i have sarah coming from sweden and, and norway it hasn't hasn't had the pleasures of uh, an entire day at lords yet but you know I, I will make her soon who is your favorite conductor of yesteryear there are so many to take so so much from. Uh, I mean, the 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 dullest and most truthful answer is Carlos Kleiber, who everyone will say, I'm sure, <laughs> because he managed to combine so many beautiful things, incredibly soulful, joyous music making, a, a, the technique of a magician, and this ability to talk to musicians and, and orchestras that was both on the level of the soul of the music itself and incredibly cartoonish at the same time. So firing people's imaginations with every, every word he spoke. One of my favorite books is uh, Correspondences with, with Carlos, where he just talked about music in these joyous, naive, but incredibly centered terms. A personal favorite of mine as well. And who would you consider to be a favorite current conductor? Well, I have a, again. I have a, there are a few I could mention. I mean, what Simon's done for classical music over the last thirty years is extraordinary. Um, people who run big institutions and keep keep their artistic integrity whole is a wonderful thing for me. I love what Tony Papano does for that at Covent Garden and the way that he runs that company and the way he makes you feel as a as a guest artist. I I love how Yannick runs both the Met and Philadelphia Orchestra in, in, in the same kind of way with, with, with brilliance and humility. I think it's a wonderful time for hearing a, a really wide diet of incredible performances and interpretations from conductors. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Difficulty comes in many shapes and forms, doesn't it? I, th I, the, I think one of the most challenging pieces to center and help in was an opera by Kaya Sarayaho called Adriana Mater, which I did with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, but probably a good 10 years ago now. Um, because it's the way Kaya writes, you're creating the momentum all the time and it's very polyrhythmic and you have to keep, you know, keep, keep on track with the score, but also keep a dramatic line going through it. And I was so exhausted at the end of that performance. It was, it was the premiere 
was it the UK or the European premiere of the piece, I was so exhausted that I forgot to give her a bow on stage. She was sitting in the audience and never got up for her bow because my mind was so boggled by, by what we'd all been through. Um, luckily, she eventually forgave me for that. Uh, well, interestingly, my choice of hardest piece uh, had exactly the same ending which and the exactly the same orchestra, which was the BBC Symphony Orchestra and a performance of Peter Maxwell Davis's World's Bliss. Really? Uh, and he was in the audience. I did exactly the same thing. And I, I did two or three you know, on and off stages. And it was only after the third time I thought, oh my, my God, I better give Peter a bow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. But our minds are so, our minds are screwed at the ends of performances. I mean, and if I have scores there, I'm going to start writing in who to give bows to at the ends of pieces because I mess that up more times than I get it right, I think. Um, but the, there are other areas of music that I think are uh, elusive to the point almost of impossibility. I think conducting those great Wagner operas, Meistersinger and Tristan, you know, they're sort of photographic negatives of, of, of each other in a way, and, and being able to find this shape through four, five, six hours, and the beauty of the individual detail and the, and the under, underpinning of the text, finding that matrix. I mean, it's a life's work and far beyond, I think, probably, but, but that's the level of difficulty which I, I find intoxicating and <laughs> hugely, hugely frustrating at the, at the same time. You kind of need to live with those pieces for, for many years to, to get near them, I think. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? When I travel abroad, pencil sharpener, that's a dull answer, but I love having my, my pencil sharpener out with me. I feel very lost without it. Um, and I, my iPad, I mean, you can do, when I started conducting, iPads didn't exist and the internet barely did. And you would go abroad and you'd feel very lonely. It's lovely to wake up to to radio from home and uh, I mean there's so much you can do with an iPad and uh, it keeps you connected to people it's a time this time we're finding now you know with with uh, zoom and, and Skype and face FaceTime you can actually feel like you're still still part of a community when you're on the road all the time what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor the thing I tore, that's really hard. I, I, I loved the travel when I started out before I had, you know, things to pin, things to, to ground me in particular places, a, you know, a relationship or, a, or my son, Charlie. Um, if there was a way of working with as diverse a range of orchestras and musicians internationally without have, having to spend so much time away from home, that, that, would, be a, that would be a miracle. What profession other than your own would you love to attempt? Do you know what? The one thing I, I, I've, I've always been intrigued by, and I have many friends who do it, is being a lawyer. And, and I mean, it's not dissimilar to being, to, to in many ways, being a conductor, standing in front of groups of people and trying to persuade them. But I'd love, I love the idea that the way that words work and are turned and manipulated and, and played with can lead to completely different judgments from people. And uh, I've always been, yeah, I've always been slightly obsessed about that idea. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would your choice of final meal and drink be? Mm, okay. Um, 
I do know what it's not. It's not particularly politically correct at the moment, but a, a, a beautiful, juicy steak, steak frites, would be is about as good as it gets for me. And um, a lovely, a lovely two thousand and four Bordeaux to go with it would be just great. Thank you, Ed, for a wonderful chat, and I look forward to seeing you again. Hopefully, sitting somewhere in the mound stand at Lords, watching England playing a test match very soon. Sounds great. It's a date. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time I chat with someone whose earliest experiences as a conductor were in his home city of Birmingham, but who has since conducted all across the UK and beyond, eventually leading to him becoming principal conductor in Parma, Italy. Until then, bye-bye.